Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards of PureAndSimpleBible.com, and I'm very grateful to be in the second part of a mini-series called The Cost of Our Sacrifices with Brother Greg Gay. Now, Greg and I have had a great time having this conversation, and like I said last week, these are kind of uh, extended episodes, if you will. They're a little bit longer than I normally record with people because Greg and I enjoy each other's company, and you're going to notice, I think maybe you did in the last episode, and you'll notice in this one as well, usually I, I really try to trim out anything that's little bits of uhs and ums that might distract from the conversation. But two, three, four times in this uh, conversation, Greg and I would chuckle about something maybe related or unrelated. And I wanted to leave it in because I, I thought it made the conversation feel more authentic. And Greg is such an easy guy to talk to and such a jolly man. And so uh, his laugh is infectious. I was laughing along with us, even though I was there when it was recorded. I was laughing along when I was editing and I think you'll enjoy some of the lighter moments as well. We're studying about King David and some very poor decisions he made. So we're going to flesh out this episode in the Bible, and we're going to spend time with David as he makes the poor decision, as there are some ramifications of that decision, and then obviously the applications that we can make, rather that we can discover whenever we learn from this Bible story together. So Let's jump back into the recording, shall we, and learn about King David and the cost of our sacrifice. Getting away with it, yeah. so to speak. Maybe uh, if we were to do something and then we pray uh, and ask for forgiveness, uh, there is this hope that maybe we got away with it. So would you comment on that for a minute? Well, it's one thing to be sorry and to tell God, but that doesn't put what we've done and said in foot-high letters in front of the world. Right. <laughs> it's quite another to have your dirty laundry aired in front of everybody. Uh-huh. So we all want our sins to be as private as possible, no matter how we've, no matter how we have conducted them. Right. We want the forgiveness thereof to be quiet, and we don't want anybody else knowing, if at all possible. So we, we sometimes think, well, no matter what I've ever done, I'll just keep it to myself. Now, I end my sermons by saying if we've done something of a public nature that's offended uh -huh. God, then we need to take care of that publicly. If it is truly a private thing, of course, we take care of that privately. But when others are involved, as in this case they certainly are, um, David could have known, uh, probably not through with this, but he started correctly. Where does, where does repentance start, if not an appeal to God for forgiveness? Right. And so we have to be convicted that we are wrong, of course, and with that conviction, we then say, so what? Mm -hmm. Well, so what is, I have prayed to God, and is there more that needs to be done? Yeah. And if there is, are we willing to do that? Mm -hmm. And sometimes people are willing to say, well, I prayed to God, so you can't hold that against me anymore. It's like, well, but. <laughs> it's like, well, you're holding it against me. God doesn't hold it against me. It's like, well, no, where, where are the fruits as a result of that repentance? Mm -hmm. And so that's where we are with David right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you there's, there's two 
I guess, persons going on here, the personification, Israel, and then the man, David. Israel's done something wrong, too. And, yeah. and so you talk about how Israel's errors are a very public example. So are, in, in this, where you're going to bring it into the New Testament for a minute, are you talking about David's sin, or are you talking about the, the nation's sins? I'm talking about the nation as a whole. Okay. And the things that they did, the, the, the inspired summary of Israel's errors is fascinating in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul says by inspiration that these things are our examples. Uh-huh. So we in the church, we say, how can we learn? How can we learn from what happened to those people that went on before us? Well, Paul says, well, here's some examples. And it just so happens that these are examples of what to avoid, mm-hmm. of what not to do. And what do we see? Well, they became idolaters. They lusted after evil. They committed immorality. Uh, they, they murmured. They complained. They, they did all of these things. And all of those things become examples for us. Um, and that's that these things happened to them as examples, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 13. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, when we are admonished, that's a, that's a serious warning from God. Okay, here's a serious warning. Do not go down this road. Others did that before that had God's approval, mm-hmm. and they were punished. Yeah. And so we have God's approval in the church as Christians. But if we go down this road, verse 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Right. So we would all say, well, I'll, I'll not do that. Yeah. And uh, what, we, what we know is that any sin can be our sin. And so we all have to be very, very careful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is hope in that, though. Uh, verse 13 that you have on the slide talks about uh, the, the temptations that come. They are common to us all and that God uh-huh. is faithful to make that way of escape. Yes. So even in this admonition there is also that that the good news right well the absolute relief that uh, god is there for us mm-hmm. and he wants us to make good decisions and and when we make these mistakes uh we look back and say okay i could have i could have controlled myself there i could have made different decisions next time i'm faced with this i hope and want and intend to do better mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Well, it's not over for David. No, right? in the night. Remember, this, this repentance happened in the night. And we know that because of Second Samuel 24, verse 11. And when David arose in the morning. Mm-hmm. So the report is back. He knows how many soldiers he has. And in the next morning, the word of the Lord came to prophet Gad, Second Samuel 24, 11, David's seer saying, go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So I think it may not have been the sight of the prophet that would have caused David to sweat. But when the prophet of God said, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. It's like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's... uh... Let's consider those. You know, if people aren't familiar with this account, they've not read it before. To them, three things might be three blessings. But In this it's... case, not the case. Second Samuel twenty four thirteen. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, 
Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Okay. Can we break these down, maybe chew on them for a bit? Yes. Well, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) We can. (laughs) Three years of famine. Um, A famine in Bible days is something we're not accustomed to in our culture. Right. Other places around the world are still accustomed to famine, sadly. But it's where children starve and families die and energy is lost Mm -hmm. and hope is lost. Mm -hmm. Um, So when a famine attacks your land, you are automatically weakened no matter who you are. The strongest of warriors has to be fed every day. And without without provisions, Israel would have no defense whatsoever, and many, many lives would be lost. Um, And just picturing the poor children who would starve to death, even in spite of the efforts of parents doing their best to feed them, is just a horrible thing. So three years of famine. Right. And that was one choice. The next is a lot shorter time, but three months before your foes. Israel was always surrounded by enemies. Right. God had always promised, I'll protect you in battle from your enemies, and did, over and over again. So three months without God's protection means three months that enemies on every side of Israel would invade with no one to stop them. Wow. And they would plunder and pillage the villages. They would kill everyone. They would, they would kill, if they chose to, women and children and carry off those that they chose to. They would take their, their possessions and they would have three months of free reign in all of Israel. Then the last one is three days. By the way, yes. that three months, do you think any of that, uh, do you think there's a connection to the fact that David has had to flee from his foes for his whole life? You know, he had to flee from Saul. He fled yeah. from Absalom. He yeah. There's probably huh. a mental anguish associated with that of like i've already been through that i know what it's like to be running and be hopeless and have nowhere to go that's a connection i didn't think of but i i think david was well experienced in in how horrible that was and and then to think i have no defense now when david was fleeing from saul he had god's protection exactly over and over again god is saying not going to protect you Uh now i think what god is saying here is you're going to live and that becomes part of the punishment of David, if you will. Because there's nothing that says in all of these punishments that he's going to lose his life. And sometimes the greatest punishment of all when we do wrong is surviving at the expense of others. Right. And so uh, it appears that David is going to live, but his nation is going to be plundered either by hunger for three years or by his foes for three months or by a pestilence for three days. Mm. Now, I, in my mind, the prophet Gad was, was saying, okay, here you go, three choices. Tell me which one you want. I need to go tell God. <laughs> and it's like, oh, give, give, me, give me a year or 10 <laughs> to think about this. How can you think about this just in an, in an immediate right. response? Right. It's like, 
I don't like I don't like any of those choices. Uh, yeah, there's no good one. And I like your Bible trivia fact that this is the only multiple choice punishment. Yeah, in the scriptures. Yeah, and it's like I I think we all put ourselves in David's shoes. We've all made stupid mistakes. <laughs> but for a prophet of God to come up and say, oh, you choose. Uh, no. That's literally like saying to someone, do you want to lose your wife or your husband or do you want to lose your children? Oh, yeah. And that's the type of anguish that David is facing right now. I get asked those questions by my kids, not specifically yeah. that one, but they, they ask innocently these yeah. questions that are so much deeper than what they intend and yeah. make you think about it. So, yeah, yeah, I don't like those at all. No. Um, I think you ask a very insightful question, and that is, how do we fix our lives when all the good choices are gone? And before you answer, I guess I'd like to preface that for for our listeners to help them wrap their mind around it. I think we oftentimes feel like there's always going to be a good choice. If I repent, then suddenly there is that option where I get off scot-free. Yeah. And there's confusion when it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. or there's bitterness, etc. But it's time to maybe focus on acceptance that you can have things go bad that will have consequences for the rest of your life. Yeah. even if you start obeying God. Mm-hmm. So let me ask it again and have your thoughts on it. Um, how do we fix our lives when all the good choices are gone? Well, I think we're left with trying to figure out the least damaging choice among the difficult choices that we face. And that involves our own health physically, emotionally, spiritually, the health of others physically, emotionally, spiritually, What is the least damaging choice? Because Mm -hmm. if we are down to the best of poor choices, that's that's no place we want to be. But if we are there, what are we going to do with this? Mm -hmm. So we have individuals who have made choices in their lives, and then they've said, "I want to, uh, I want to make this okay," and then I want to move on with life. So I compare the messes that we can get into to uh, a time as a kid on the farm in Missouri that I raised worms in a coffee can (laughs) so I could go fishing at the pond nearby easily and didn't have to dig worms. So I put dirt and coffee grounds into a a coffee can and put a few worms in there to start. And before long, I had this tangled mess of worms in this coffee can that you you couldn't figure out where to start (laughs) to get one unraveled, okay? Okay. Well, that's kind of what we can do to our lives. Uh-huh. Our lives can get so snarled that we're like that ball of worms in that can, and there's no good way to unravel it. So the sample situation I had is where a man may say, I've been cheating on my wife with a sister in the congregation. We've not stopped yet, but we will. My wife does not know. Her husband does not know. We've prayed about it. Do I have to tell my wife? Does she have to tell her husband? I have the lesson next Sunday. Should I go ahead with that? And we think, well, that would never happen to anybody. Right. But it does. Uh-huh. And it has. Uh-huh. And so the concept of, of choosing the best of bad choices comes to mind when you have individuals who have been immoral, uh, Christians who have been immoral, 
and the guilty party ends up being told they need to live alone and single for the rest of their lives. It's a great example. And I've known of individuals who've looked me in the eye and have said, quote, I don't have enough faith for that. Wow. And then I've known of other individuals who are doing just that. They are living alone for the rest of their lives because their life got to the point where all they had was the best of bad choices. Mm-hmm. The good choices were all gone. Well, David has a choice to make. And uh, how, does, how does this go down? Second Samuel twenty four fourteen. he said to Gad, I am in great distress. And let me stop right there. Yes. Can't <laughs> right. we just feel that? Yeah. It's like this, understatement. Is a, this is a horrible decision. He didn't say this is the hardest decision I've ever had to make. Um, but he said, I am in great distress. And that's how anyone would feel. And then he said, let us, and that means him and all of Israel, let us fall into the hand of the Lord. Because, see, nothing was offered that just involved him. Everything that was offered involved all of Israel. So let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So he didn't choose the famine. He didn't choose being invaded by his enemies. He chose the three-day pestilence because the Lord's mercy is great. I, I appreciate this visual of let us fall into the hands of the Lord in that he has just been punished and his response is to fall into the hands of the Lord. Yeah. I know that there's the imagery there of the Lord's hand being the hand of affliction mm-hmm. instead of the hand of man, but I, I'm sure you were the same, but when we have to spank our children, and their immediate response is to fall into my arms. Yes. Isn't that sweet? I'm a little bit emotional about it. I yeah. hope, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to shed tears, but yeah. it's very humbling to have to administer that Yeah, and to see them immediately cling to me. And that's a heart that can love God. Yeah. Yeah. So... Maybe I'm looking at this with fresh eyes on mm-hmm. what it must have been like for David. Yeah. Well, what happens next? The angel of the Lord is dispatched. And how God uses angels is another amazing thing that's beyond our ability to comprehend. Right. right. In this case, it appears that the angel of the Lord had a journey of death that followed the same path as those who went to count Israel. Really? Yeah. Okay. So they journeyed from, from uh, well, in range from Dan to Beersheba. Right. But it appears that they followed the same route because as the census ended up in Jerusalem, so the journey of the angel ends in Jerusalem as well. So everywhere, everywhere we went, everywhere the angel of the Lord went, there was a pestilence. Now... What does that mean, pestilence? Uh, I, I hear you say that, but maybe it would be best if we could pause and meditate on that for a bit. Well, one of the earliest experiences we have with that term 
although it was called moraine, I believe, when it struck the Egyptian livestock. It was this plague or moraine or pestilence that killed the livestock in Egypt. So that's the first use, I believe, of that, of that particular word. But it, it, it just refers to contagious diseases of huge epidemic proportions. So these pestilences were fairly common. And in this case, the pestilence, this mysterious instrument of death that God carried out with his angel, was delivered upon, it says, 70,000 men. Now remember, Joab was sent out to count all of Israel. His report only included the fighting men. Mm-hmm. It appears that the, the deaths from the pestilence were only that of men. Mm a very intelligent, selective process, if you will, which meant everywhere the pestilence went in Israel, there were widows and orphans left behind, children without their daddy and wives without their husbands, Mm -hmm. from one end of Israel to another. We're not told how the angel of the Lord knew who to strike, but death came to 70,000 families. Mm one person at a time. Now, you make a connection to what we're going through right now by saying once upon a time we didn't know what that might have been like. I think we wouldn't have had a clue <laughs> unless we were really old and had lived in the early 1900s right. with the, the flu that swept the world then. But with COVID-19, um, we would compare that to a pestilence because it is a contagious disease of epidemic proportions. Mm -hmm. And when I was preparing this sermon some weeks ago, uh, at the time there had been two and a half million lives lost around the world, half a million in the United States. So then for our congregation at Piedmont, I said, well, what states mean a lot to us? Because we have relatives and friends there among the members of the congregation. There's other states I could have chosen, but Texas, Missouri, Arkansas, Kansas, Oklahoma, West Virginia, Nebraska. Mm -hmm. At the time, the deaths in those states from COVID-19 added up to a little more than 70,000. So we know what that many deaths has looked like Mm -hmm. in our world. And no doubt, it would have looked worse in Israel's time because I think those 70,000 were of a smaller population than what we're dealing with. Right, right. And I think we would have known far many people in Israel's day who died, but we all do know of individuals who have died. Right. And like you say in your notes, uh, you know, the, the big distinction is that it appears that nothing indicates that COVID is a pestilence of judgment yeah. versus just a... Sadly, a naturally occurring pestilence that is plaguing our land at the moment. Right. We could say the same thing of the Spanish flu that swept the world in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, these aren't judgments of God. Um, can we say, well, well, God judges men? Well, of course he does, but does he do so in this way? Not that it's revealed. And even if God were choosing to punish people, uh, we wouldn't know that because there's nothing revealed about it. Mm -hmm. What we can know is that um, Luke was a physician, and he was never condemned for doing the best he could 
with what he encountered. Right. So we can be thankful for the blessings of our culture that includes protection from many diseases that otherwise would have harmed our families, yeah. if not eradicated our families mm-hmm. long ago. Mm-hmm. So we are blessed with, with progress and we're blessed with, like today, with vaccine and uh, for COVID. And I'm thankful to have had both of those shots to, mm-hmm. to have a little bit of freedom <laughs> in the world. But we all know someone who's been affected by this particular area of, of pestilence, you might say, of COVID-19, as all of Israel knew someone. And when this was going on, the deaths happened in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. So our deaths have taken a year. Right. Israel's appears to have happened overnight. Yes, there would, I, I could only imagine the sense of urgency in our land if take those numbers and apply it to a three-day spectrum. Yeah. That, I wonder what would happen to our civil government if in yeah. three days that happened around the world. Yeah. Um, so, I guess visualizing the account, I'd, I'd not considered that it was following the path of the census, but the since the census ends in Jerusalem, or you know, as Joab returns, so the death angel follows, and what happens whenever it's, I guess, wrapping up its movement? Well, we see that God was directing the path of the angel. First Chronicles twenty-one fifteen, and God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. So next on the list uh, during this three days of pestilence was Jerusalem. And it says, as he was destroying. So he began his work as he had already done all over Israel. And as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster. And this is the mercy of the Lord that David was praying for. Because the pestilence, it does not appear, lasted a full three days. Mm-hmm. Okay, we don't know how long it lasted for sure, but it lasted to this point, and the Lord said, it is enough. It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And to imagine God, who is a God of justice, having that fulfilled and satisfied with his mercy mm-hmm. is an amazing concept because he's told the angel, it's time to stop. And he stops at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. That is, that's the First Chronicles account. Right. And we, we know him as Arona uh-huh. in the uh, Second Samuel. Second Samuel 24. version. So uh-huh. there's a yep. couple of names to describe this man. Um, before we get to the, the threshing floor exchange that we kind of started this conversation with, you asked the question, where is David? And we just kind of assume he's hanging out with his council or something, but it seems to indicate that uh, he was there kind of expecting judgment to fall on him as well? Or Well, he had evidently gathered the leaders um, of Israel together. He summoned them to his presence, and obviously that meant he shared what he had done and how he was wrong, and the decisions that he was given, the choices he was given, and the decision that he had made. And we find in 1 Chronicles 21, 16, that David and the elders were clothed in sackcloth. So they weren't saying, look at us, how great we are. 
Yeah. Uh, we're going to get through this. They were saying, we are so sad and we are so sorry that this has happened. And that was to be clothed in sackcloth was a sign of repentance and it was a sign of mourning and it was a sign of humility before God. We can't even wear our normal garments. Mm -hmm. We don't want to appear as though we are deserving of anything special. We have sinned and this is, this is our heart being shown outwardly. And so sackcloth was, was their dress of the day, and they were somewhere, it appears, likely together. We don't know exactly where. You had talked about how David was going to be alive through this. It's kind of in, inferred or implied mm -hmm. that he would see the end of it. But he didn't necessarily want to be yeah. at this point in the story. What happens in verse 17? Well, he says, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? Am I the one who had sinned and done evil indeed? But these, ship, these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people that they should be plagued. Hold me responsible. No one else has done this except me. Now let me go back just a little bit to what David was allowed to see. There is an unseen realm mm -hmm. where God and the angels dwell. There have been a few times when that veil has been lifted and individuals have been able to see all that exists beyond our scope of vision. Mm -hmm. This is one of those cases. Because the message somehow came to David, look, we don't know who told him, we don't know how he knew, but it says in 1 Chronicles 21:16, he lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Just imagine seeing that sight. Now, obviously, David, wherever he was, couldn't see a normal-sized man figure mm -hmm. with the sword drawn. This had to be a larger-than-life figure in the sky yeah. that David could see. Yeah, I never thought about it. Yeah. And so here's, here's this angel of the Lord with his sword drawn over Jerusalem, and David and his fellow leaders, they fell on their face before the power of God yeah. expressed through this angel. And it is then when David said, I believe from his position on the ground, punish me. Mm. punish me what have these people done and i think what david was seeing as he said those words was that angel with his sword drawn over the city of jerusalem you make a point in uh the study that he offered to bear the punishment of his own sin and that that's going to be reflected in his one of his descendants well, when we regret our sin, we want to restore a right relationship with God. But we can't do that on our own. And what David was wanting to do was to use himself as the sacrifice for his sin and for the sin of Israel. But that's not how it worked. Even sinless animals only postponed the wrath of God mm -hmm. for a year. Mm -hmm. So David couldn't do that. But what it does point us toward is the sinless Christ who could. Yeah. 
and that is one of David's descendants, of course. I love that point. Yeah. A beautiful uh, observation made by, I don't know, this case. Case? Yeah. I, a commentator? Yeah. It's a lookup. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the visual I have, there are certain times when you, you, you forget how small you are, especially living in the city. You live in the city, you're not around nature, and, mm. and as, as maybe frequently as you are if you kind of live out. But just yesterday... Uh, did you get to see any of that storm last night or experience any of it? On the way home from church, uh-huh. yes, yes, uh-huh. wow. <laughs> there was a bolt of lightning that stayed on the ground for at least two seconds that lit up the DFW area. Wow. I mean, I'm driving home from services, and it got almost as light as day. Wow. But before the sun went down, I remember seeing those cumulus clouds, these yeah. giant clouds, mm-hmm. and just to experience how big that cloud was, Suddenly, that that helps me maybe think of visually what this angel might have been like. To have that experience where there's this that ominous dread Uh of how large it is and how small I am. Yeah, that would be a reflection. Yeah. So, well, uh, the God's prophet comes back the next day, right? He comes back. And what happens there? Well, not only was it not enough for David to pray, and it wasn't enough for the punishment of the pestilence, but God is now wanting a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And that sacrifice would then satisfy the Lord's anger for this time and would stop the plague. So now you might say David's being given another choice. You want the plague to continue? It can. Or if you will offer a sacrifice, um... If you will offer a sacrifice, raise an altar to the Lord, then that plague can be stopped. Well, can't we see the eagerness of David? <laughs> let, 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 me, let me get to that threshing floor as quickly as I possibly can. Yeah. And I don't see David stopping to change clothes for that journey. <laughs> so he's still in his sackcloth. As far as I can tell, he's still in his sackcloth. He's a man with a mission mm-hmm. to get that plague stopped. Mm-hmm. Now, so all of a sudden, here we are, this man that owns the threshing floor, and it's David the king. <laughs> and the Israel leaders coming in, it's, they're not there to work. They're, they're not there to help. They're not there to throw, throw grain in the air. <laughs> It's like, what What can I do for you? He paid homage. He put his face to the ground. He was respectful to the king. Why are you here? David says, I'm here to buy the threshing floor to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And that's 2 Samuel 24, 18 through 21. So the Arona said, um, here, take, take, take whatever you need. Right. You know, now Arona was... A Jebusite, not an Israelite. Jebusite, okay. Okay, which was a conquered people, but not an Israelite. The Israelites were the ones who died. It seems the Jebusites, as a conquered people who were allowed to stay in Israel, right. it appears that they were spared in all of this. Okay. So here's a Jebusite, a man of means, to have his own threshing floor, and in honor to the king, he says, uh, uh, take what you want. 
and I'll gladly give you oxen for the burnt offering, uh, the threshing sledges, the yoke of oxen for the wood, all of this I give you. And then he said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. And that lets us know the difference between the Jebusites and the Israelites there. So he realized that God's relationship with Israel and David was different than his relationship hmm. with the God of Israel, it appears mm -hmm. in that particular statement. So he's a very willing person to say, take whatever you need. Sure, sure. By the way, where's the angel at this point? Is the angel still standing over Jerusalem? Is it? See, the angel is gone to, my, to, our, to our vision. Okay. And once David was told what to do, I think the window of his vision would have been closed because he was a man with a mission. Right. And it right. wasn't to say, look at that angel, <laughs> even though we would. It was, let me get to the threshing floor immediately. Okay. So in my mind, whatever God dispatched the angel to do was up to him, but I think that mission was over at that particular point because the destruction of the men of Israel had, was, was over. Okay, okay. Well, we've uh, <clears throat> we've got someone that's willing to give David everything. Yeah. How does David respond to that? David said, "I can't. I can't take your gift. I I just can't offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing. Mm -hmm. I just can't. So I need to pay you for this." And the owner of the threshing floor agreed, and David bought it for fifty shekels of silver. And he constructed the altar from those materials that were off that were offered to him. It appears, and then he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and so you have the smoke of the fire of the sacrifice ascending to heaven, and that satisfying God's anger against Israel. And the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. So here we are, full circle yep. at the end of the account yep. that we started with, uh -huh. and what good preachers like to do is <laughs> make application. Yes. So I'd like to give you that opportunity, if you want to, to what, what sort of applications can we make from this story? Well, David was near the end of his reign. I think he had 10 years left. As we get older in the church, we tend to think we're somebody special. We have it made. <laughs> We're big, etc. And we all start over each day needing God's mercy and needing God's help. It's also common to think that greatness and strength comes from who we are or from what we have. Now, our possessions, like David, um, may have included conquered territories or the number of soldiers. Solomon may have measured his success by the number of wives and concubines. You know, mm -hmm. whatever it is that we measure success by in life can become a place of temptation for us. And it's like, well, I have an IQ of four digits. You know, <laughs> therefore, I am some great one. Well, that becomes a place of temptation snare, for us. Yeah. So. Now, you uh, talk about this, this relationship with God. That, you know, since David refused to be reconciled for nothing, so that, that this application of the way we interact with God, you, you question, is it free or should it be free? You know, David's example is that really nothing is free and, and to, to enjoy something special it would cost dearly. 
What sort of connection are you trying to make there? Well, David could have just accepted the gift and offered the sacrifice. He could have. But remember, David has always, when we read him carefully, he's always looked for ways to serve the Lord. Mm -hmm. And he's always wanted to show everyone around him a good example of service to God. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that he's trying for extra salvation. Right. He's just saying, I, I want to show people that I am dedicated to the Lord, and when that costs me something, that is certainly something I am willing to pay. So that is who we can be. We can be individuals who say, well, salvation's a gift. Right. Um, so, And some denominations teach that. It's just a gift, and you can't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to lose it. Or we could say, wait a minute. Yes, it's a gift in that God offers it to everyone, and yet it is supposed to cost us everything we are. And are we willing to pay that price? Are we willing to love less everything in this life to show we love God the most? And if we're not, then we're not willing to pay the price to have a right relationship with God. And in essence, we're saying, nah, I just want a free relationship. I just want a free ride. <laughs> yeah. And that's not who God's people are supposed to be. Yeah. That's not who David was. I got a comment and a question. Yes. Uh, Glenn Ballard. I think I heard him preach this the first time with this title. I have a sermon with this title. Maybe all of us have this sermon with the title. The High Cost of a Free Gift. Yeah. And just exploring what it means when the Bible says that that it is free. Well, nothing's free. And, yeah. you know, you can explore that you know, uh, at public school, free and reduced lunch. Mm -hmm. that, that lunch isn't free. Somebody's yeah. paying for it, you know, yeah. some, somebody somewhere. So I guess my question would be then, and uh, you, you talk a bit about this in your study, those that um, think free means absolutely free and there's nothing to be done. What's the difference between what the Bible teaches, maybe in the book of Romans, about it being free, and then what some of these groups that advocate for free and absolutely free, and there's nothing that I should ever do. What's the difference between that? Well, the the free gift that's being talked about in the book of Romans, when I look in Brother Boniface's commentary <laughs> <laughs> and read about that, it has to do with the comparison between um, Adam and Christ, and it has to do with the fact that that Jesus brings in salvation's possibility for all mankind. And uh, the fact that that is there for us is nothing that we can deserve. Mm -hmm. It's nothing that we can ever earn. So in that regard, the salvation is a gift waiting for everyone's acceptance. However, that particular gift, the gift of salvation, requires things for us to do. And we can't, as the Ethiopian eunuch did, go on our way rejoicing with a great relationship with God until we have looked and obeyed those things that indicate a correct reception of that gift. Right. Okay, so when we obey the gospel, we are not saying you owe me to God. Yes. We yes. are just signifying our reception of that gift. Right. In our obedience to the gospel. Yes. Now, other religions make a big point that saying, 
Well, you can't know that you're saved. There's only a few people selected or predestined to be saved. If you're saved, you can't be lost. If you're lost, you can never be saved. And so don't worry about it. And it's like, well, then why do we even have the Bible? Right. Ultimately, if that's the case, why did Jesus die if that's the case? Um, and so there's a lot of misinformation and mistakes regarding the nature of the gift of salvation that is described in the book of Romans. Mm -hmm. But our response is that we do know that we are not forgiven of our sins to become a new creature until we go through the likeness of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we do that and we're dripping from the waters of baptism, we don't shake our fist toward heaven and say, <laughs> now you owe me salvation. <laughs> now we fall on our face before God and say, thank you for yeah. salvation. Thank you that I can obey you and serve you in my life. Amen. Thank you. That's mm -hmm. well put. That helps me properly frame work so that when I ask this question, I don't feel icky thinking that it's from the framework of uh, I am shaking my fist and saying you owe me. Mm -hmm. But you ask the question, how hard are we willing to work to appropriate, appropriate tasks for appropriate goals in life? And so, yeah, with the mindset not of shaking a fist towards heaven, but of falling down and appreciating the gift, um, what do you have to say about this question? How hard are we willing to work? So... I'll mention a brother, a departed brother, that I had the pleasure to know in California named Ernie. Um, Ernie was late as a faithful Christian. He was baptized as a young man but strayed for many years. And he eventually made things right, and he attempted to stay right for as long as he lived. He couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. <laughs> he just couldn't. He didn't necessarily read well. He struggled with, with being appropriate in how he said things. But you ask Ernie, if you were, quote, in charge of the service, Ernie, what do you feel like doing today? He'd say, anything you need. He'd stand up there and he would start a song. He had a sense of timing. And he would lead us on. I helped him with notes for prayers. And I helped him with notes for how to uh, wait on the table. Mm -hmm. He said the fewest words of anyone I ever heard waiting on the table. Mm. Deliberately so. And when I asked him, Ernie, you know you could say more. He said, no, I'm scared to. <laughs> I'm afraid I might get it wrong. Ah. Now, Ernie didn't have what we would say a huge blessing of talents. He would teach anytime you ask him to. He might have copied something out of a commentary, and he couldn't pronounce half the words. <laughs> <laughs> but his spirit of willingness to do is what I'm referring to in this. Everything he was ever asked to do, he did it to the very best of his ability. And so you ask Ernie, well, Ernie, you, you had the lesson. It lasted about 20 minutes, and you couldn't pronounce some of the words. How long did you work on that lesson? He'd say all week, all week. Wow. 
He studied more than anybody in the congregation. And anybody that sat in the audience wouldn't recognize that, Mm -hmm. wouldn't acknowledge it. But I would happen to know that he was willing to work with everything he had to do what he could in the service of the Lord. So regardless of the talents that we have, a lot of times we have school teachers who won't even make announcements at church. We have executives in businesses that lead hundreds of people and motivate them to do great things that won't even go see somebody in a hospital. Yeah. So we have individuals with talents. The best songs have not yet been led because many times singers won't help. The most wonderful prayers have not yet been led in public because those who could won't take the time to figure out some notes to follow in case mm-hmm. they forget their place. And, and on and on you go. So who we are with our talents is a gift from God. Every one of the talents that we have, whether it's one or half <laughs> or many, it's a gift from God. Do we use those talents? Do we use them for all we're, all we're worth mm-hmm. in the kingdom of God? If we do, then we are doing our best not to say to the Lord, I deserve salvation, but to say to the Lord, I am so thankful for the salvation that is mine. Yeah. And so this baseball coach, Matt Lyle, uh, he's coached at every level of baseball from little league to big leagues. And he said, don't be upset by the results you didn't get from the work you didn't do. So a lot of us want instant greatness in whatever it is we're brave enough to attempt. Right. But Coach Lyle's point was that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. We work and we work and we work, and then we achieve a level of success. Sometimes it's a wonderful level of success in some people's eyes. Other times it's not. But whatever it is we apply our talents to in the Lord's church will be blessed. Now, no one may listen to us and say, wow, you're the most wonderful singer ever, or wow, you're the most wonderful preacher ever. That's not what we're doing this for. We're doing this so we can praise the Lord with all that we, ha- all that we are and more for his glory. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going back to uh, David. Mm-hmm. And you're going to make some connections that are going to blow some people's minds if they, they have not already made these connections. And you make the point that God, can, uh, God turned the situation into a new beginning. What happened here previously at the threshing floor of Arona? And it, how, how, what's, you know, it seems that this place is a little bit more special than we thought when we started the study. Doesn't it, though? This is an amazing place because years before, This particular spot is where Abraham was willing to offer Isaac. And that is when God, in an amazing display of mercy, Mm -hmm. stopped the sacrifice and supplied a lamb. So here, the Lord stops the sacrifice and later provides a lamb. Mm. And so we see the mercy of God displayed on this very spot on earth. But God is not through with that place. Because not only did David build the altar to stop the plague, it also became the exact place where David's son Solomon would erect the temple of the Lord 
the place of the dwelling presence of God. Yeah, I didn't, see, I didn't know this. Yeah. That makes it that's that much sweeter. Isn't that amazing? It is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you, you kind of transition from here into Christ, right? So because of Christ's sacrifice, uh, you talk about Jesus. It's not really that physical place so much as his dwelling in the heart through faith, but you're, you, you are drawing on this connection of a new beginning, right? The new beginning for us is that we get to become the place of God's dwelling. We don't have to find the place on earth under Israel, exact spot in right. the Jerusalem ruins where the temple might have been and try to restore that. We, we can say we have a relationship with God and God lives in our hearts through faith. And that's Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. Mm -hmm. And how that happens? That we are rooted and grounded in love. And so where does that start? It starts with our heart. A love of God leads us to want to obey him with all of our hearts. And in that regard, we can be filled with all the fullness of God. Mm -hmm. The temple was filled with the fullness of God in Israel's day. We can be filled with the Word of God, which is being filled with the fullness of God yes. in, in our lives. And so that's at work in us. And then verse 21 of Ephesians 3 says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, the title of this study is also the final question. So I guess this is where we're going to bring it to a close, but I'll ask the question, and if you want to take a moment to answer it and, and, and uh, have a final word on the study itself, but what is the cost of our sacrifice? Well, I chose a verse to reflect uh, what I think is a beginning of an answer to that. In Galatians 6, beginning with verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. But this can be difficult. It can be the hardest thing we will ever do in our lives. So verse 9 of, of Galatians 6 gives us this encouragement. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Mm -hmm. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. Mm -hmm. So every day we can remind ourselves, yes, we can get tired, but we're going to get there. Mm -hmm. In due season, we shall reap that eternal reward in heaven. Well, brother, thank you very much for coming in. Of course. Taking the time. I know you're down here for a gospel meeting, but I you know, seized an opportunity to bring yes. you into studio. <laughs> and thank you very much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Great man of faith, great preacher, good friend. I'm thankful for Brother Greg joining me in studio. He was down here for a gospel meeting at a different congregation, but I was able to poach him for a couple of hours on a Friday afternoon, I believe, and uh, we were able to get lunch together and record this episode as well. So if you want to hear more podcasts, you can go to the website, www.pureandsimplebible.com, you can check out the whole catalog of podcast episodes and catch up on any that you've missed. There's also videos, there's workbooks, there's booklets that you can print and pass out. It's all there on the website, free to download and use. 
check it out. Until next time, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story.